So um, without raising your hands, this is a rhetorical question that just you can just raise the hand of your heart with if you like. How many of you have some ideas of how church should ought to work? Anybody? Anybody have an idea of how church should or ought to work, but it doesn't really? Yeah, okay, good. I've, I've got your attention now, right? I, you know, I've done some study on this, and, and probably the most fruitful time of study that I've ever done on this work was actually not as a pastor, but in the pews or chairs going to church as an adult and I, I've come to this. I am not exactly sure how churches should work, but I have come to some conclusions about how they don't work and what doesn't work. How about these? I've got four or five ways here that I guarantee you will not work for church. The first one, and you're familiar with this, is the lawgivers. If the church acts as the lawgiver for the community, you know um, my, so my bony finger of indignation starts pointing out, you guys ought to do this. If it does that, that doesn't work. Do you know why it doesn't work? Because while we do have a gospel of grace or truth, there is truth to our gospel, there is also grace. So if you want to be the law-giving church in the community, you got to back it up with some relationship grace ahead of time. If you want to speak truth into somebody's life, they've got to know you care for them. And that isn't just a moment because you just you came out of your door and you said, truth. Usually that requires four to five times as much investment in grace ahead of time before they can take the truth. So that one... How many of you thought, thought that, that maybe there ought to be more truth in church? Yeah, okay. I'm still asking rhetorical questions without your hands going up. Good. How about this one? Are you ready? The holy huddle. You get to this group of people, and if only the holy people came, then we'd be all good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer from Germany during World War II would say, a community of saints. It doesn't work. Do you know why it doesn't work? For us to live as saints, we have to let go of something. The actual reality that sometimes we're sinners and we're the community of saints, but we are also a community of sinners that we forget who we are. And because if we, if we forget that we are people saved of grace and still in need of grace, look, the way that it comes to me is this. I am a man in need of a Savior, and I still need Him every day. So you don't get over that just because you met Him. But if you come over here and say, you guys, we're only going to be the saints over here, then pretty soon we're going to have to pretend we're actually okay and bring up this facade of fake reality. And then there'll be no relationships because you can't have relationships with something that isn't real. But you can only relate to people as you know who they are. Okay? 
Here's one I know some of you have heard about. This way doesn't work. The frozen chosen. Right? You've, you've studied the Bible. You only study the Bible. Everybody can quote the Bible. All that stuff. Super awesome to study the Bible. But there's something matter. You've let go of something. Do you know what that is? The right of the Bible to adjust your behavior. Now I, now I need to say that again. The right of the Word of God to adjust you. Right, I asked you that question earlier. How many of you are theologians and, and everybody goes, uh-uh, I'm not... I, I saw a lot of hands go into back pockets. I'm not putting my hand up for that. But a theologian is somebody who's been encountered by the Word of God, and the Word of God has a name, and it's a book. And his name is Jesus. And if you've been encountered by Jesus, and that's put some concern upon you for either what you should change in your life or how you should start acting or how you should change then you are a theologian, but, but you don't get to be frozen in that. Now you have to put some hands and feet to those changes. There's no, there's no fat cells in the body of Christ, no pew potatoes in the church. You don't get to just be a couch potato only in the pews. That's the frozen chosen. You've got, you got to put some action to those belief changes. i got one more. Okay, how about this one? Have you ever experienced the country club church or maybe, maybe more aptly named the gated community? Do you know what a gated community is? We don't really have many of them here. We were just in one that you don't get in through the gate unless you have permission or somebody put your name in or, that, or your emergency services. Look, Churches often say, look, we're the called, we're the chosen, so that means we get to choose who are the called and the chosen. And you forget that you weren't one of those special people when you were called and you were chosen, just like Israel. So remember, there's all these ways to do church wrong. They have some truth in them. You are called and chosen. Every one of the ways I told you that does church wrong is partly the truth. But you have to let go of some concepts. Every time you come into the sanctuary, you have to figure out how you're going to be and how you're going to leave the sanctuary. That's the text for today. Is We've got two people that, that are in a sanctuary and their behavior. So I'm going to read you a story. It's a little longer story about Doeg and David at the sanctuary at Nob. Um, just so that you're aware of this, and, and I'm going to say it again, if you ever find yourself reading in the Bible and you're really concerned about the verses that you're reading and how to pronounce the names, I'm just going to tell you today the same thing that I tell everybody else. Pretend you're doing it right and go. And today you'll know why I'm saying that. So David went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech. See, you're already glad you're not reading it. Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he saw him and he said, Why are you alone? He asked. Why is nobody with you? And the, 
David replies, the king has sent me on a private matter. He told me not to tell anyone why I'm here. By the way, in our storyline, David is running for his life at this point from King Saul. The king did not send him. Now, I was reading one of the commentaries trying to excuse David's behavior, and it said, David really meant God the king and not Saul. But the, but the commentary is trying to excuse David's behavior of lying here. Um, later on in the story, David doesn't excuse his behavior. So let's, let's, let's recognize that David isn't one of our beloved characters because he's perfect. He's real. And here he's on his run from his life, and he's lying. Now, what part of that is good in your life? Another rhetorical question without your hands up, okay? Have you ever lied to anybody and then worried about what you said to whom? See, it's always better to tell the truth because then you don't have to remember what you said to whom. I told this story in the first, but... But when you tell the truth, it's always good to have a loving heart because you can use the truth as a weapon as well, can't you? He's not using the lie as a weapon here. I, I think he's, to use a modern concept in an Old Testament spot, he's probably trying to give the priest a plausible deniability for later. It's not going to work. He told me not to tell anyone why I'm here. I have told my men where to meet me later. Now what is there to eat? Can you give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have? We don't have any regular bread here, the priest replied, but there is the holy bread which you can have if your young men have not slept with any woman recently. By the way, that's a ritual purity thing going on there. Um, Don't worry, David says. I never allow my men to be with a woman while we're on a campaign, and since they stay clean even on ordinary trips, how much more on this one? Still lying. Still lying, isn't he? Since there's no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. It had just been replaced that day with fresh bread. Now Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief herdsman, probably not the correct designation of chief herdsman there, probably a um, different commentators use different sort of things, probably a position a little closer to chief man in arms or or even uh, one of them suggested a possible terminology, sort of like chief of secret police. And you'll see that later. Saul's chief herdsman was there that day, having been detained before the Lord. David asked Ahimelech, do you have a spear or a sword? The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. Still lying. I only have the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Now, Goliath, the Philistine, is a Philistine, but he had a town name. Does anybody know what town Goliath was from? Gath, right? Gath, Goliath of Gath, whom you killed in the valley of Eli, was the priest replied. It was wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Take that if you want it, for there is nothing else here. Oh, there's nothing else like it, David replied. Give it to me. So David escaped from Saul and went straight to King Achish, 
of Gath. Why did I have you remember where Goliath was from? Because it doesn't go well for him here. So David escaped to Gath, but the officers of Achish were unhappy about his being here. Isn't this David the king of the land? They asked, isn't he the one the people honor with dances and singing? Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. Now you can understand why the citizens of Gath don't really want David hanging around. Now, but this song has got David in trouble every time it's sung, isn't it? Saul doesn't like it, and the people from Gath don't like it. Anyway, David heard these comments and was very afraid of what King Achis of Gath might do to him, so he pretended to be insane, scratching at the doors and drooling in his beard. By the way, if you're a little worried about coming into my office and everything, this is not the way to make me worry about it. My, my door is a little more open than that. I just wanted to throw that out there. Finally, H.S. said to his men, must you bring me another madman? We already have enough of them around here. Why should I let someone like this be my guest? So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and his other relatives joined him, and then others began come. Men who were in trouble or in debt or were discontented until David was the captain of about 400 men. I'm going to skip down. He leaves the country, arranges for his dad, to be, mom and dad to be safe, and then he returns to Judah, and I come back in on verse 6 of uh, um, 1 Samuel 22. The news of his arrival in Judah soon reached Saul, still king in the land. At the time, the king was sitting beneath the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah, holding his spear and surrounded by his officers. What did I say last week about holding spears? How are you going to discharge a spear if you're holding a spear? The best way to do it is to throw it, but if you're throwing it to hurt people, you talk to me about that today. That's an important image. Still holding his spear and surrounded by his officers. Listen here, you men of Benjamin. Saul shouted at his officers when he heard that David was back. Has that son of Jesse promised every one of you fields and vineyards? Has he promised to make you generals and captains in his army? Is that why you've conspired against me? Have they conspired against him? Look, if you've got a spear, you're going to have to aim at some place at some point in time. Far be it from me to be nearby. I would hate that, right? For not one of you told me when my son made a solemn pact with the son of Jesse. There's no proof that any of them knew that. You're not even sorry for me. Well, most people are not sorry for the king. Think of it. My own son encouraged him to kill me as he was trying to do this very day. Okay, so here's Saul's kind of lying too, right? Just making stuff up as he goes. Then Doeg, remember he was in Nob at the time, says, when I was in Nob, I saw the son of Jesse talking to the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahadab. Ahimelech, there's the tongue twister. See, you're really glad you're not up here reading this. Ahimelech consulted the Lord for him, and then he gave his, him food and the sword of Goliath. King Saul immediately sent for Ahimelech and all his family who served as priests in Nob. And when they arrived, Saul shouted at him, saying, Listen to me, you son of Ahitub. 
What is it, my king? Ahimelech said. Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? And he demanded, why did you give him food and a sword? Why have you consulted God for him? And why have you encouraged him to kill me as he was trying to do this very day? But sir, Ahimelech replied, is anyone among all your servants as faithful as David, your son-in-law? Why is he the captain of your bodyguard and a highly honored member of your household? This is certainly not the first time I had consulted God for him. May the king not accuse me and my family in this manner, for I knew nothing at all of the plot against you. Look, we have a couple of examples of truth-telling. We have a couple of examples of lying here, don't we? When does, when does the words that come out of your mouth become a weapon? Is it when they're only truth or when they're only lies? Or what's going on in your heart that makes the words of your mouth a weapon? Something to consider, isn't it? As you come into the sanctuary of God this morning, I need to adjust one more thing with you. This, well, we call it a sanctuary, don't we? This is not the sanctuary. Do you know where the sanctuaries are? Sitting in the pews. Playing in the nursery. This morning, as, as three or four of them ran through here giggling, the sanctuaries were giggling in a building. And you just need to adjust that little thing to you. But in this Old Testament story, the sanctuary was a building. God's intention was that we would be the sanctuary of God. How do you come into that knowledge? Through your heart, yes. But every day after your heart is there, do you always come in there all bright and shiny and say, Lord, what would you have me do today? Or do you sometimes come in there and go, as I would do on a gray, cold morning with a foot of snow on the ground when it's supposed to be green grass? (laughs) Say that again. Right. Yeah, they're both praises and prayers, and sometimes in my heart there's some grumbling. <laughs> just being a little gristle. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. Do any of you ever have any grumblings in your heart? Okay. So it's not just me. It's not a unique situation to Pastor Dave. Whew. Whew. Look, wonderful things happen in sanctuaries. When you come into a sanctuary, when you come into the presence of the Lord, wonderful things happen. You become aware of him moving around you. Maybe you had a memory of when, of an earlier praise that he came through for, and you came into his presence, and it comes up to your mind, and you remember, and you're like David coming into the sanctuary at Nob, and you're on the run, and you're hungry, and you have no defenses. And you come into the sanctuary, you come into the presence of God, and and he takes care of you, even if not every single thing in your heart is right. Even if you're lying. He still can care for you in those moments. David left the the sanctuary at Nob with food, caught his breath, And he had a weapon. 
so he could protect himself. Now, we might not always like having weapons and all those things, but that's the truth. David found bread and sword. Does anybody else know what the word of God is also called in the Bible sometimes? Sometimes it's the bread of life, bread, and people call it a sword, don't they? Have you ever heard somebody hold up a Bible and said, did you bring your sword today? That's a denominational sort of thing. I'm not sure that everybody does that. I hate to, can, I, can I see yours for a second? Because my little electronic one isn't quite as... Thing. This, by the way, is a fabulous thing. This one has all these cool notes in it. <laughs> but this is not a sword. This is not the sword of the Spirit. Do you know why? This is a book. The sword of the Spirit is this inside of you. When you read it and put it in, it becomes the sword that cuts both you and others in this way, right? That that we live in the bony finger of indignation, not just in the truth, but in the grace because we know that the sword cuts both ways, right? It's a double-edged sword. Many fabulous things happen in sanctuary. We get fed, we get taken care of, we laugh and we giggle, and sometimes the sanctuaries run through the building. You know, some pretty gruesome things happen in sanctuaries, too. Sometimes in sanctuary, there's a doe egg. Don't be a doe egg. But sometimes there are. Sometimes people come into the church, and they're looking to look really good. I, I, you know, sometimes people put little fish on their, on their company signs so that they can say, look, I, I do this really good, and I'm a Christian. And what they really mean is, I want you to be think I'm trustworthy even if I'm not. It's not the same thing as putting a mark there and actually living the life. But some people get status out of it. Have you ever, have you ever met those people? Some people, some people think that the best way to get a, a secret out is to come share it in gossip in a church, which is not. Gossip is the fine art of confessing somebody else's sins and not your own. Horrible things happen in there. Sometimes we legitimize the, our thoughts and our, our hate towards other, others in church. We think, well, we're good and they're bad, so we'll think badly of them. I just, I, I, I thank Debbie so much today for her prayer. You know, she lifted up babies and mothers in this thing, but she didn't cast any blame. Just let's pray. That was nicely done. It is so easy to go, those sinners out there are doing bad stuff and we need to get them. We need to point our our bony finger of indignation at them. You know, that's not how church works. That's how church doesn't work. Every time we enter a holy place, we become aware of the presence of a holy God, says, says one commentator. We either leave better or worse. If we come to a separate to separate ourselves from common people and things, we will most certainly leave worse. If we leave, we will leave as Doeg did, ready to impose our notion of right or wrong on someone else, forcing our idea, idea of God on another, full of indignation, crusading, and in a holy war. 
But if we enter hungry and needy, letting ourselves be vulnerable before God, bluntly, even belligerently asking for what we need, we will almost certainly leave better. We will leave as David did, grateful to be simply alive, amazed to know that God is with us, If the sanctuary, if this is not the sanctuary, but you are and I am and you are and you are, and you have the ability to enter into the presence of the Lord one way or another, how will we do church? What's a simple way that we can work on becoming the people of God and leaving leaving and bringing God's presence with us wherever we go. I've got this idea. This is what it is, okay? Are you ready? How are we going to make church work? First, a story. Have any of you, who's, 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 who had kids with, with another person? Parents. Is any parents in the room? This, you can raise your hand on this one. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not gonna, that's, that's, that's not a damning thought. When you, when you were having kids, and the kids were really little, Karen and I just, uh, we were on plane flights with this little girl, Olive, who was pretty good for a two-year-old on an airplane down there until her ears wouldn't really pop right at the end. Olive. But when you, were, when you had kids... And, and the baby cries in the other room. Did any of you ever wake up once and think, I could get up and take care of that for my spouse? And then not do it. Do you know what I'm talking about? You go, no, they're going to be better at that. And then you say, like I would say, Karen. <laughs> and you wake up the one that didn't get woke up. Okay, I'm pointing, right? This is the bony finger of indignation. Now, now, to be honest, with our first one, um, Alex, had such, Alex and I had a connection that if I went to the crib and grabbed him while he was crying, he would be quiet and back to sleep by the time I got him to Karen. And she at one time said, don't do that. <laughs> I need him noisy here. I need him awake and hungry. <laughs> but he would go back to sleep just in the thing. But in order for me to go, no, I'm not handling that. You handle that. I have to start self-justifying myself. I have to say, you know, I'm really tired, and she's going to be better at that. Anybody ever experienced that sort of thought process? That still small voice, that little voice that, that nudged you that said, you go handle that. The Holy Spirit acts exactly like that in all our lives, all the time. Here's how church is going to work for us this week. Last week, we focused on not grabbing spears and holding them. This week, we're going to work on listening to that still, small voice and then doing it and then not blaming somebody else because we didn't have to for why we didn't do it. Because we did it. We, 
we saw a movie recently. This is one of those superhero movies from DC that wasn't as big a blockbuster. Anybody see um, the Justice League movie? It's, uh, okay, none of you. Perfect. <laughs> so, so, so it's where they first put the superheroes together and Flash, do you know who Flash is? Flash is the really fast guy. And they're in this situation and, and they're supposed to do something and Flash goes to Batman. Hey, I, I, don't, I don't really know what to do. I really just run fast. I've never done anything like this before. I just run fast and nudge people. <laughs> and Batman says to him, save one. Just save one. Then what? Oh, you'll know. That's what Batman says. Just save one. Then you'll know. And he saves all the people because he's fast, right? He's faster than them. When God speaks to you that still small voice saying, do this little thing. Do this thing for somebody. Just do one. Just do it. Let's get used to hearing the voice of God in the sanctuary inside that still small voice. Let's get used to hearing it and just following through. When God speaks, can you do just this one thing? What about this? Do it. Do that. And then you don't have to blame anybody. And you won't be caught up as David is at the end of this text when he finally is told, after all the priests are killed and all those things, Doeg kills all those things, and one, one escapes and goes to him and flees to David. And when he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord, David exclaimed, I knew it when I saw Doeg there that day. I knew he was sure to tell Saul, now I have caused the death of all your father's family. There's no need to go there. Let's do that little thing that God nudges us to do. Let's, that's the watchman on the wall. Let's do the thing, just the one thing. And then what? Oh, you'll know. Dear Jesus, thank you for today. I thank you for these dear saints of yours who also still need your presence. May your sanctuaries move freely about and even giggle if necessary in your building. But may we mostly just hear your voice and respond. In your precious name, amen.